Welcome to a very special and exciting edition of She Said, She Said, which will give you a first-hand glimpse, a window, as it were, to the history of the Beatles. You know, on this program, we hear from authors who research and write about the Beatles and people who knew the Beatles, but rarely, very rarely, do we hear from one of the Beatles. And today, that's the treat that we have in store for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today. I am your co-host, Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Records series of rock and roll cookbooks, available at lanastagg.com. These four books include the original Recipe Records cookbook, which pays homage to hits from the 50s to the 90s and the Recipe Records 60s Edition cookbook highlights food and music of the 60s, you know, those groovy songs that your mother should know, <laughs> and the Rolling Stones cookbook. Let's spin the bite together. And yes, of course, Recipe Records, a culinary tribute to the Beatles, which includes Beatles history, trivia, song lists, to enjoy as you cook. And great recipes such as She Said Banana Bread, Strawberry Pie Forever, Lady Medallions, and Cold Turkey Salad. As a huge Beatles fan myself, it was a joy to research and compile this culinary Beatles-themed book, and I am so looking forward to chatting with our cool guest today, as well as chatting with the amazing Jude Sutherland Kessler, whom I have missed so much these past few months. Oh, thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. It's kind of like Christmas morning. It was hard to sleep knowing we had such a great guest on today. I am Jude Sutherland Kessler, the author of the John Lennon series, found on the web at John lennonseries.com now this is a proposed nine book series I'm thinking it may end up being a few more it is a series of narrative histories telling the researched and documented life story of John Lennon and of course if you're going to tell John's story you have to tell about his mates the Beatles as well it starts before his time with the Beatles and then goes up into his solo career thus for volumes one through four are on the market and they're available to purchase. They take you from John's birth in October 1940 up through the mad events of 1964, which is the year of Beatlemania. And because it's written as a factual research narrative, you actually feel as if you're there almost day by day with the Beatles. So right now I'm working on Volume 5, which is Shades of Life, and that's going to cover the events of 1965. Now, only Volume 4, Should Have Known Better, is available in physical form. The other three books have already been gobbled up, and you can only read those in any ebook format whether you use the free Kindle app on your iPhone or Nook or whatever it's on every ebook form so you can get that free Kindle app and then join me for the ride along with John Paul George Pete and later John Paul George and Ringo and our guest today because in volume one should have been there 
we spend a momentous evening with the lads at Leatherland Town Hall on a Tuesday evening, 27 December 1960, holiday time, a real tipping point in Beatles history, and we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. And that night, the Beatles have a new bass player with them, a guy they really, really, really like, they all got along with, and a person that they hoped to make a permanent member of the band. That is right. He was affable and extremely talented on bass. So with Stu Sutcliffe, who had been the band's first bass player, he was remaining behind in Hamburg, Germany, to study art with Eduardo Palazzi and to be with his beloved fiance, the late Astrid Kircher, and the Beatles returned home to Liverpool without a bass player at all. Yep, that's right. And when Stu announced to John that he wasn't returning to Liverpool with the others, John had pretty broadly hinted that he expected Paul to step in and play bass. And Paul had made it just as clear that he did not want that role. So the boys began trying to recruit this talented musician they'd heard quite a lot about. And they were wrangling, as the Beatles could wrangle, to convince him to join the band permanently. And here to give us the rest of that exciting story is that very talented bass player himself, the charismatic and wonderful Mr. Chaz Newby. Hi, Chaz. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Hi, both, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Well, oh. our heads are swirling a little bit, Chaz, and we're, as Jude said, it was hard to sleep last night with uh, feeling like it was Christmas morning. <laughs> it's been a an exciting thing for me as well because uh, as you're probably experiencing in the United States at the minute, we're in lockdown here and because of uh, age, not because of any, uh, any medical problems, but simply because of age, I'm in the, uh, the lockdown on my own and uh, sure. I can go out, uh, but uh, socially it's a bit of a pain. You know, sure, yeah. sure. It really puts a really puts a damper on on everyone's social life and uh, it's really a it's a huge bummer so so Chaz take us back if you would please and tell us what you were doing in December of 1960 and how did right. the Beatles find out about you and how did they get in touch with you and invite you to join the group well, when uh, prior to Pete Best playing with the Beatles uh, he played in another band called the Blackjacks. And mm -hmm. I was a member of the Blackjacks with Pete and Ken Brown and a guy called Bill Barlow. Now, Pete was, a, he was an, old, an old school friend. Uh, I'd known him since I was about 12, 13. Uh, and we went to the same school in Liverpool. So we knew each other. And in 1959... Uh, we started this band with Ken Brown and Pete on drums and Bill Barlow and myself. And then, round about April of 1960, I had to, part of my chemistry, chemical engineering course, I had to go work 
uh, in a company uh, in Essex, near on the outskirts of uh, London. And the guy who was playing guitar, Bill Barlow, he was making his own uh, preparations for you know, careers and further education and whatever. And Ken's uh, family, just at that particular time, Ken's family uh, moved down uh, south, uh, again, somewhere in the London area. And uh, uh, the band broke up, which meant that Peter was had a full set of drums and no one to play with. So when the Beatles were looking for a permanent drummer, uh, slight, you know, just before they went off to Hamburg for the first time in August 1960, uh, a new piece was available. So that's how they got in touch with him and off they went to Hamburg. Now, later that year, October-ish, I'm back in Liverpool, back at college in St. Helens, and obviously when Christmas comes, I'm on vacation. And I mm -hmm. get this call from Peter saying, uh, you'd better get down to the Casbah Club. We want to discuss something with you. And uh, it transpired that uh, they wanted me to play bass on a temporary basis, I have to say. Um, uh, and they told me all about Stuart staying in Hamburg. So I got to play four gigs over a two-week period uh, in the Christmas time of 1960. Um mm -hmm. Bear in mind, the Beatles were not known in Liverpool. They'd only just uh, changed the name of the band to the Beatles just before they went to Germany. And so nobody knew who they were. Uh, and we played the Casbah Club, Pete's uh, home, Peter's mother, Mrs. Best, who ran the club in the basement of their large house. We played there. We played one gig uh, across the river, Mersey in uh, Birkenhead. And it was the third gig that uh, the balloon went up. Uh, it was just a fantastic night. And uh, mm. we just really hit it. And the crowd sensed that we were hitting it. You know? So everybody enjoyed <laughs> it. It was, it was good fun. It was good fun. And then the last, terrific. the last time I played was New Year's Eve, 1960, 1961. And then I was back in college. On the 4th of January, I was back at my desk. So uh, I, I'm sure I've said this to Jude. I really wasn't that interested in becoming a professional musician. I mean, I'd learned how to play from the time I was 13, I suppose. Um, and I, you know, I played with John and Paul and George uh, unofficially up in... Uh, in the best house, so to speak, you know, uh, mm. just jamming. <laughs> but uh, I was not expecting to be invited to play. Uh, and it was purely down to Peter that uh, I got the job for that short time. So it was, uh, but it, it was on the basis that, as I understood it, it was on the basis that Stu was coming back to Liverpool the early part of January. And in fact, he did. He came, I seem to remember he came back to Liverpool uh, mid-January 1961 and then took up his role again um, and it was only it was only I think by sort of perhaps the first couple of months of 61 that Paul was uh, persuaded to play the bass and it was hmm. uh, it wasn't until 19, uh, 
by April of 61, when they were back in Germany, that Paul got his first left-handed Hofner bass. Sure. So well, did, they, did they encourage you to, uh, to join them for the long run? Well, it, it, was, uh, it was quite confusing, really, because I knew from the start that it was only temporary. And, but John uh, was talking about uh, getting people out there to play. And I, looking back on it now, I think it wasn't so much that he wanted me to play with the Beatles. I think he just wanted more, uh, more of his friends, more of the Liverpool bands to get over to Hamburg and uh, experience what they'd experienced. So mm-hmm. I think it was a sort of a friendly invitation to get some guys together. Because, I mean, our band, the Blackjacks, First of all, the drummer was playing with the Beatles, and by this time, Bill was working down, uh, he was at university on the south coast. Ken, I think Ken was probably still living uh, in, uh, Ken had decided to stay in Liverpool while his family had moved, uh, and I think he was, I think he was living at Heyman's Green. But but certainly, the band that we had had disappeared, uh, so there was no... Uh, there was no way that I was uh, going to traipse across to Germany to play in a rock and roll band. I was being paid a salary to go to college to study. Oh. You know, so there was no way I was going to give that up. Yeah, so. No, just to, to beg for a piece of bread at night and a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so you were on a full ride to school, and were you doing an assistantship, or how how is it that you were getting paid to go to school? I was employed by Pilkington uh, Glass Company in St. Helens, and they were running this course in uh, chemistry and chemical engineering, uh, training their own people uh, to work. You know, once they'd graduated. Uh, to work uh-huh. uh, in the Pilkinson factories. I I did that for three years. Then I I sort of sp- specialised in the chemical engineering, and then eventually when Pilkinson paid me to go to Manchester University to do a master's degree, uh, uh-huh. which I did uh, at the end of the 60s, and then yeah. by which time Margaret and I were married, and they, they said, oh, we've got this great job for you. Uh, and the factory actually is in Birmingham, in South Birmingham, which is why we came down here to start our family and, you know, sort of set our roots, so to speak. Right, right. Well, okay, we are dying to hear because you were present for what we were calling earlier a tipping point in Beatles history. You were right there front and center on Tuesday night, the 27th of December, 1960. In fact, you were very, very sweet to give me a signed poster from that (laughs) night at Litherland Town Hall. So take us back and tell us what happened that night. Right. As I, I, I wasn't uh, party to any of the organization, you, you understand. But right. uh, I understand that the, the gig was organized by a, an old friend of yours who's since passed away, Bob Wooler. Right. And Bob Wooler uh, convinced the guy who was running the gigs at Lillian Town Hall that he needed to hear this band, the Beatles, who'd just come back from Germany. 
Uh, and this guy, I'm trying to remember his name, but it doesn't matter. He, so the band was put on at short notice, and they already had three bands en- already engaged for this gig. And so the Beatles actually played in the interval between uh, halfway through the night, and they only played half an hour. Now, this, this was in a proper ballroom. Uh, Liverland Town Hall had a proper sprung floor, a stage, curtains, etc. And we're all behind uh, the curtains, and Bob Wooler's on the microphone, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, direct from Hamburg, the <laughs> and he just about got the word out, the Beatles. And mm-hmm. Paul launched into screaming the Little Richard song, Long Tall Sally. And it just, everybody was amazed, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it was like in the United States in 1959, 1960. But in the UK, all our, all our heroes had disappeared, right? Uh, Elvis was in the army. Buddy Holly had died. Chuck Berry uh, was in jail. Little Richard yeah. was back in the church. Carl Perkins was somewhere in a, living out the bottom of a bottle. Um, mm-hmm. All our heroes had disappeared. And the, the, the people who'd fill the gap, if you like, were the nice, clean, preppy boys. Jerry Lewis called them the Bobbies. You know, Bobby, <laughs> v, Bobby Vinton, uh, Bobby Rydell, Bobby Darren. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were all nice, clean cook guys, you know. Uh, shiny shoes, and, yeah. and very controllable by the record companies. You know, there was none of the, the there was no killer like Jerry Lee Lewis. There was nobody like Chuck Berry. Uh, nobody like Elvis, who was you know causing all sorts of problems for the music <laughs> industry. Then. Um, and so, and that uh, sanitization of the music, if you like, that had come back over to to the UK. So we had. Yeah, we had a whole uh, raft of uh, British uh, rock and roll bands who not wore nice suits and nice clean shirts and ties and shiny shoes, and they would do little dances on the stage. You know. And this was exactly what the Beatles were trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem was at Liverland, the people who went, they weren't interested in the bands. They just went for the music so they could dance. It was a dance hall. It wasn't a theatre. Mm. And so when the interval came and these punters are you know, sort of getting ready to start to dance and they're expecting somebody to put some records on and they're presented by this group of five people dressed in black leather. Right? Mm-hmm. And Paul is screaming at them like little Richard. Yeah. Right? So you... They just stopped. They couldn't believe it. And then gradually, the dancing just deteriorated. And everyone <laughs> came and stood in front of the stage. And rather than uh, listening to the band, rather than the band providing the music for them to dance, they were witnessing a concert. They were part of the evening. And yeah. uh, as I say, we were only on for half an hour perhaps a little bit, five minutes more. And we finished up, well, certainly at that particular time, the Beatles always finished up 
with the Ray Charles song, uh, What They Say. And so, and in the middle of that, there's a sort of uh, a shouting and, you know, a sort of the audience reaction bit, you know. And uh, when Paul was singing that, the audience went bananas. And then they started, you know, responding, you know. Whoa, 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 whoa. And, and the guy who, the guy who was running the dance thought a fight was going on. He thought, you know, <laughs> the discipline had broken down. And he sent his sort of two or three heavies to, to sort out this puncher. And in fact, it was the audience enjoying themselves. And <laughs> most of the authors, uh, and particularly uh, Mark Lurson, who you'll be familiar with, um, they credited that night as the beginning of Beatlemania. And I think mm. in Mark's book, he says uh, yeah, that there were, there were plenty of trials and tribulations for the Beatles from that night on, but they never looked back. And, no. uh, it, certainly, it certainly created, it created a, a following for them in Liverpool that they didn't have before. And so... Yeah. Uh, Brian, oh, that's his name now, Brian. Something. Was it Brian Kelly? BK, Brian, Brian Kelly. Thank you. Yeah. Brian Kelly, that's the one. And he booked them for two shows a week at, you know, the various uh, theatres and halls that he ran dances in in North Liverpool. And he did that until they went back to Germany in April. So on the basis of that one performance for 30, 35 mm -hmm. minutes, uh, you know, they had about 30 gigs out of it. You know, wow. Which was quite good. Um, and it certainly, it sort of solidified their, uh, their aim to make money as professional musicians because playing two gigs a week, you know, a few pounds each, they could just about exist. On. I mean, they didn't, obviously, because as soon as their reputation became more widespread, then, yeah. you know, they started getting more and more and more gigs, and it finished up with them playing at the Cavern. And, I mean, they were at the Cavern every day, I think, you know. So, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it was, uh, I remember going, when I went back to college, and, you know, the guys, we were, Jude might know this story, but the, the guys, were, we were talking about what we'd done over Christmas, and one guy had been skiing in Switzerland, and he looked quite... You know, nicely tanned in the winter sun, so to speak. And one guy had been up to uh, Scotland to visit his grandparents for Hogmanay. And they said to me, well, what did you do? I said, oh, I, I played bass with a rock and roll band. <laughs> and, uh, I told them about, you know, this band, the Beatles. And so it, it must have come back to haunt them, you know, in a couple of years' time when the Beatles became known nationally. And then, of course, they went on to become well, more well-known in, in Europe and then in the United States and then the rest of the world. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you happen to remember that night, because I'm looking at the poster that you gave me, and it looks like the Deltones and the Del Renos were the other two. Yeah. Did they play before you or did they play after you? <coughs> no, that the... Delrinas and the Deltones played before us, and mm. the Searchers were the most, uh, you know, on the basis of the original poster, the Searchers were the right. most senior band, right? Right. And uh, they were going to close the show, which they did. 
but by yeah. which time, I mean, I don't think Mike Pendon would have been very pleased with the Beatles that night because uh, I think the, the I think the Beatles closed the show for him in the, in the interval. You know, so uh, I think it must have been quite difficult for them to go on stage and then face up to that sort of mayhem. You know. Yeah, I bet they were on needles in Penza. I guess so. Well, Chaz, so two weeks, you say two weeks, you were a Beatle, and during that time, I, I don't think, um, if my memory serves, Stu didn't come back during that time, did he? Or did you get to well, meet Stu? He didn't, he didn't come back. As far as I bear in mind, my memory is not the best thing after 60-odd years, uh, but um, I think Stuart came back about the middle of January, by which time yeah, I, think- I was back at college, uh, uh, whatever. And then I think, I think Paul managed to put some bass guitar strings on his, old, you know, his six-string guitar. He, just, he got rid of the guitar strings and replaced them with three bass strings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from then on, he started to play bass with the band. And, and in fact, when they went back to Germany, Stuart went with them, and there are photographs showing both Stuart and Paul playing bass guitars while we're on stage. So wow. I, don't, I don't think Stuart left immediately. You know, I think it was over a long period of time, and I think it was probably as his relationship with Astrid matured, and also... Right. The chap you were talking about, the prof at the art school, you know, his mm-hmm. supervisor there, has their relationship right. improved? And then I think Stuart must have thought, well, forget it. <laughs> I'll do something that I want to do. So. Yeah. He ain't never wanted to do it to begin with, but John just wouldn't take no for an answer. Yeah, he just wouldn't. I mean, he wanted his soulmate in the band with him, and no matter That's what right. Stuart said, you know, he was going to do it. Well, so do you- you have a John story for us, perhaps? So do you have any memory of John, any, any, anything when you think about him, anything that you remember from your time together? Only that I, my, my impression of John was uh, he was the, the leader. He was the most powerful of the, the, you know, the, the four of them, as I knew, you know, John, Paul, George, and Pete. Um, I got the impression that he was the one who made the decisions. And probably the, him and Paul uh, decided which songs they were going to do, because obviously they, at that stage, they were sort of alternating. And John would do one, and Paul would do one, or they'd do one where they both sang together. And very occasionally, uh, they would drag George in, and George could do a Chuck Berry song or a Carl Perkins song. And, uh, and very occasionally... They would all three sing. You know, they, they were they were the first Liverpool band that I saw where they could harmonize. You know, three part harmonies, and they used to do some of the uh, the doo wop songs. Uh, Come go with me by the Del Vikings, mm-hmm. and the Quarrymen do that now. Uh, you know, because that's one of the songs they did uh, in this sort of uh, when they were still called the Quarrymen. Right. So yeah. I think John was definitely the leader, I think. 
Paul, Paul was the entertainer. He was the one who smiles at the girls. You know. And George just, George just sat at the side or stood at the side and played because he was just interested in the music. You know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you and Pete where did Chad fit in? Where did where did where would Chad fit in in those descriptions? What have you me? been the? Oh, I I, the, I was the substitute. <laughs> This is like uh, it's an American football game, isn't it? You know, where the defensive team comes on and the the uh, attacking team comes off. You know, I, I was the one who you know, Stewie came off and I went in, and then I came out and Stewie came back. You know, so. Yeah. Well, I I look at it as an experience, but it's not one that I think I could claim that I contributed a lot. It's uh, because the songs we were doing. We're fairly standard, uh, you know, late 50s the cover rock song. and roll, classic rock and roll stuff from, you know, as I say, you know, people like uh, Elvis and Carl Perkins and Buddy Holly, uh, Little Richard, Chuck Berry. It was that sort of repertoire. And all the bands in Liverpool did the same thing. Yeah. 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 Apart, the, the, there were some of the bands, I mean, Rory Storm, for instance, uh, they used to turn up in a uniform you know, with suits mm-hmm. and all matching shoes and matching socks and numbers on their back, you know. It was just, <laughs> and they used to mince around the stage as well, you know. So. But the Beatles certainly didn't do that. Uh, oh, it no. All, uh, it was the, the all-action show, uh, as they'd learned <laughs> in Hamburg, uh, the Mac Shower. Yeah. Right. So just do something outrageous to entertain the crowd, and yeah. it worked. Yeah. yeah. Direct from Hamburg, as they say, direct from Hamburg, Absolutely. you know. Yep. It was but, quite amusing because, uh, as I say, your friend Bob Wooler uh, announced us as direct from Hamburg, and on the posters that were hastily modified, uh, they had a little strip of paper which said direct from Hamburg. And yeah. when we played at the Casbah Club, uh, Neil Aspinall had made very uh, elementary uh, posters to put outside uh, and in West Derby Village. And uh, it said, you know, direct from Hamburg. To be- yeah. People thought we were a German band. And in fact, I, mm. I've, I've spoke, well, Jude will know, I, I spoke with Billy J. Kramer in 2013, and he was there. The night the Beat, it was you know the third gig that the Beatles, as the Beatles played, uh, and he was and he thought it was a German band, yeah. <laughs> and we, we were complimented because we spoke good English. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it even had a Scouse accent. <laughs> Absolutely, that that that's a real privilege for a Scouser to be told they speak good English. <laughs> like my. My happiest day was when I was in Liverpool the third or fourth time and someone stopped and asked me directions because they thought I looked so scouse. I was like, this is the happiest day ever. <laughs> well, you crack the problem there, Jude. You fit in. That, that's the secret, isn't it? That's the secret of communication. Where you that's have right. To, uh, you have to make yourself available to, to the audience. Yeah. There you go. It's my playing, playing playing with the quarrymen. You know, in uh, December, uh, the quarrymen played in Mexico City, and mm-hmm. 
there was a lady on the stage, and this is the, the fourth, we played four gigs, and this was the last one. And she said, and we could, you know, you sort of understand the Spanish, so to speak, and of course Rod speaks fluent Spanish. And she's going on and on and on, you know, about uh, uh, Senor and Senora, uh, this is the band that preceded the Beatles. And I'm sure the audience were expecting to see four people dressed in French suits and Cuban heel boots. You know, <laughs> long black yeah. Hair. And yeah. when this group of 80-year-olds come on the stage, I think they were quite surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did they think? Well, I don't know, because as soon as we started, they joined in. Sure. And, uh, we, we, I mean, obviously, we sing the music, uh, we perform the music that the Beatles played in that uh, period of time between 57 and 60. Yeah. In other words, the music that influenced the Beatles. We don't play, generally, we don't play Beatles songs. It's, right. You know, the, the classic stuff. Uh, but, however, we always put two in right at the end. The one after 909, uh, yeah. which is a, a Liverpool song that was written oh, right at the very beginning of the Lennon and McCartney partnership, you know, when they were still at school. But yeah. it wasn't recorded until the last album that they made in 1970, you know, the Let It Be album. But, so we sing that... The one after 909, and we always close the show. Uh, Len Gary always closes the show with a tribute to John. Oh, uh, the other guys in the Quarry Men that are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, and he sings in my life. Oh, well, I've never seen anything like it. These people were in tears, and we yeah. all the whole auditorium is singing. The words to in my life. Yeah, it was just. Funny. I'm almost in tears hearing about it. Yeah, I'm just amazing. Just amazing. Wow. Well, so here's the. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chaz. Sorry, no. I was just going to reinforce the point that it's the. Everybody gets something out of it. Yeah. yeah. The audience, obviously, uh, were listening to Paul screaming, "Little Richard." Yeah. Uh, and then in the next couple of songs he's got his eyes blinking at the girls and he's singing that Elvis song uh, <laughs> half, you know, so, so uh, and it's that relationship with the audience that's what I was trying to say yeah no, yeah they all thought that the Beatles were singing directly to them people would say Absolutely. but they look they look directly at me that song he was singing that song to me Yes, you know. Oh, I, I'm sure yeah. that even uh, much, much earlier than that, even when you know when they started at the cavern, uh, the audience were large. I mean, not exclusively, but largely female. Uh, they yeah. would shout out which songs they wanted and who they wanted to sing them. Yeah, so that uh, relationship with individuals. Uh, yes, that's what set them apart. I think from yeah. The other, People, you know, sort of analyze why they became so popular. And mm -hmm. there's loads of influences. You know, they were extremely talented. Abs I mean, just frighteningly talented. Um, yeah. They also 
came around at the right time, you know, because the music scene, I, as I said, I don't know what it was like in the US, but certainly in the UK, uh, it was very clean and sanitized and uh, it wasn't very exciting. Yeah. And then these guys came and burst the bubble and burst the bubble yeah. so that other people could step up as well. Like the Rolling Stones. I mean, the Rolling Stones are still singing hundred year old music. You read reports of Ray Davis in the Kings, uh, uh, status quo. The Beatles mm-hmm. made the whole and a lot of these uh, talented people came through, you know. But it, That's true. They, also, they were also very fortunate, A, to meet Brian Epstein at the right time, and yeah. then to meet George Martin at the right time. So yeah. all those factors, I think, sort of contributed overall, you know, it, altogether to their success. Mm-hmm. You know. and, and I think... The- Unsung hero, too, is Alan Williams, because there would have been no Mock Chow without Alan Williams, and he doesn't really get a lot of credit, but he, he definitely taught them to put on a show. He certainly did, and he was the guy who organized the, the show for Larry Pons to bring Johnny Gentle out right. in 1950, the early part of 1960, when the Beatles... Sorry, they weren't called the Beatles. Then they were called the Beat Brothers or something. Um, yeah. And they toured with Johnny Gentle to Scotland. Now, yeah. it wasn't that successful, I don't think. I don't think they made a lot of money out of it. And <laughs> we're broke. I, I don't recall what, what else Johnny Gentle did. Uh, not now, anyway. Mm. But as a result of that, then Alan Williams was in a position to get them their job in Hamburg, which then yeah. meant that they had to hire Pete, which then meant that when they came back, they had to hire me. So, yes, yeah. I mean, Alan Williams, all these people were involved. You know, so. Yeah. So the million-dollar question, you know, after then, then you leave and you go away to school and you are working and getting your degree in chemical engineering and your master's, is there ever a moment like when you see them in a hard day's night or the Royal Command performance is all over the newspapers or you, you see them on Sunday night at the London Palladium that you think, well, I could have been there. Did you ever regret it? No. Honestly, I didn't. Um I think because it, because Judy, I had no intention, you know, I had no ambition to be a professional musician. I, I knew right. what I wanted to do, uh, and I think I explained this to other people. The the group of the, the larger, wider group of people that we associated with, not just the Beatles or Pete Best, or, but all the people who used to go to that club, and all our friends in that particular time in Liverpool. It was, it was a very good time to grow up yeah. because we, we, were the, you know, we were the generation that was exposed to all this good education. Uh, we were exposed mm-hmm. to you know, good food, good jobs, uh, our own money, you know, the, the birth of teenagers as individuals rather than little imitations of their parents. You know. And I, I don't know whether I... Uh, remember this correctly but I'm sure I was involved in a conversation at Pete's club on one occasion and it was girls 
as well as guys, you know. And we were talking about what we were doing, uh, which courses we were following, which apprenticeships we did. Yeah, and there's a whole wide range of people, you know, um, people who were training to be plumbers or electricians, people who were at university training to be lawyers or doctors or teachers or engineers or whatever, uh, girls. The, the health service seemed to be a big employer for girls, either as nurses or radiographers. And all these people had these ideas in their heads. And John and Paul and George said, no, 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 no. Uh, we want to be uh, musicians. We want to be yeah. rock stars. But we all achieved well. our objectives in one way or another. All those people I can remember talking to, you know, they all became lawyers or doctors or engineers or ran their own electrical business or their own plumbing business. Or one, and there was one guy I remember to this day, and he used to wear a straw boater with a little piece of paper in the rim which mm -hmm. said press. You know, you know in the sort of 1930s and 1940s films, there were... The, 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 guy, the reporters used to wear these hats with press. Yes. And this guy, that's what he wanted to be a journalist. And in fact, yeah. he was working for the local, very local newspaper, the West Derby Reporter. Oh, yeah. And for the last minute, I can't remember his name, but he achieved his objective as well. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just a nice time to grow up. You know. Yeah. Very charming, yeah. A very charming period of time. Mm -hmm. So Chaz, Jude and I are, are so fortunate that we were able to meet you and spend a little time with you, of course, and see you perform oh, on stage in New York and at the Chicago Fest for Beatles yeah. fans a few years ago. You were, you were without a doubt a major hit of the festival. Woo. I think that you had, um, I think you were there as um, a buddy to Jim Birkenstadt. That's for the right. release yeah. of his, his new book, The Beetle Who Vanished. So That's what right. are your memories of that experience? And, and tell us, tell us how, um, how you felt you know, being at well, I, the Beetle Fest and if you have any plans to return to the States. Well, I, I, to be honest, I was quite surprised because I, I was amazed that people actually knew who I was. Because I, I wasn't famous in England, so why should people in the United States know all about me? But, um, but there's a funny uh, sort of uh, ending to that story. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was not, it's just that everybody was so open. And everybody had a, a common interest, if you like. Yeah, and I, all the way down, there were people who sort of, uh, I, I mean, I was smoking in those days. And I, I would go outside into the uh, arena, outside the, the hotel, and smoke a cigar, and people would come up and just talk. You know, there was nothing <laughs> fancy in that. They were just so friendly. And, <laughs> but the one I do remember, I remember uh, Jude did a, a session. I think it was the Chicago Fest. Jude did a session on... Uh, ladies, or the influence of ladies in rock and roll. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Jude was there. I think Frida Kelly was there. Uh, and there was like a sort of a symposium on uh -huh. the efforts that uh, ladies had put into 
the Beatles' career. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I remember was Martin Lewis, the DMC, right at the on the Sunday, and he got uh, some of the people uh, who played. Uh, there was, uh, was it Lucky DeVito, the guy who played drums with uh, a drummer. Yes, him and myself and Billy Jay, Joey Molland, and Mr. Hudson with the, yeah, the color. Mark beard. Hudson. Mark Hudson. Yeah. Right. And he got us on the stage on the Sunday. Uh, and the, dis- the uh, mm-hmm. area for discussion was the music that influenced the Beatles. And he, he asked us what was the first record that we all, that we bought. Yeah. And Lucky DeVito said, oh, it was, a, it, was not, it was a band, a big band record, uh, Louis Jordan, mm-hmm. I think. And mine was Carl Perkins. Uh, <laughs> Billy Jay was... Uh, the country, Hank Williams, Joey was Buddy Holly, and Mark Hudson was Little Richard. Now, all of those people, in one way or another, had a big influence on, certainly in my, uh, in the early part when the Beatles were playing uh, standard songs before they started singing, performing their own stuff. This was all the stuff that they performed. And I remember uh, talking to uh, Martin Lewis saying, but you've forgotten all about the other half of the performers from the United States, you know, like you know, the guys at Chess Records, like uh, Muddy Waters, yeah. Oh, yeah. Arthur, Arthur Alexander. Yeah. Uh, you know, all these... Now, we used to get those records in Liverpool because at that stage, uh, you know, there was still... Uh, merchant marine traffic going from Liverpool to the East Coast, you know, sort of Charleston and New Orleans. Uh, what's the big place outside? Uh, never mind. New York, and then in, up right. to so, so the East Coast of the United States and Liverpool were very intimately connected. So people mm-hmm. would working on the ships. They would buy these records in in the U.S., bring them back to Liverpool, and we would get them in these uh, import shops. And so we knew all about Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and people like that, probably before people in the United States knew about them. (laughs) I I used to find that ever so funny. And I I was making the point to Martin Lewis about Ray Charles and the fact that the Beatles always closed their show with what I say in the Mm -hmm. early days. Mm -hmm. And Billy Jay... I, I didn't know it at the time. Billy Jay was standing or sat next to me, and he says, "Yes, he did." He said, "I was there." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we sang "What Did I Say." Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now it was very. Uh, it wasn't rehearsed. It just mm. fell out. You know, and it was the best reaction from the audience that I saw. <laughs> it was just brilliant, and. Uh, and Billy Jay was doing all the shouting bit, waiting for the response in the middle of the song. And Hudson sang a verse, and I sang a verse, and Joey sang a verse. You know, just that, that sort of uh, interaction between people yeah. with a common yeah. interest. Just yeah. brilliant. That's, that's what I remember. Yeah, you were on fire on Saturday night on the stage, too. They had all of you up there playing oh, that sure. concert. Yeah, yeah. Saturday night and just what an honor to be able to see you perform on stage and 
just taken right back to those early days when the Beatles were still a garage band, you know, the best garage band ever. But, you know, they were, they were, that's my favorite. I was talking to John, the guy who was the guitar player and singer with the band Liverpool. And uh, he was saying, you know, what songs do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, the early stuff, not the Lennon and McCartney stuff that you do. Yeah, I want to do Buddy Holly or Carl Perkins. And I remember yeah. we did a Carl Perkins song that the Beatles had also covered. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Yeah. I, I announced it and I said, uh, are there any uh, good old boys? And there's these guys at the back who shouted out. <laughs> so we, we sang some Carl Perkins for them. <laughs> Which was... Uh, oh, man. Well, are you still playing bass? I know you play with Pete some, and I know you've even played in the Casbah. Are you, are you still being able to get up there? I, you live a, away from Liverpool, but are you still being able to get up there and perform with Pete some? Um, yes, we, uh, in the last couple of years, not so much. Um, but I've started playing with the Quarrymen now, the reformed Quarrymen with Rod Davis mm. and Len Gary and Colin. And... Uh, Oh, we're having all sorts of fun with that. That's mm. really good. So, and uh, uh, Colin, Colin Hanson, the drummer, he's the oldest. He was one of the original quarrymen when, mm. when John started the band in 1956, 57. And right. he was 80 last year. So he decided he would write a book about his experiences playing drums and his life experience, you know, with his, his wife and his family and whatever. And an American group of people, uh, filmmakers, uh, decided they must have got hold of this book somehow. They'd like to make a documentary film about it. Ooh. So kind of said, oh, that, that's fine, you know. He said, oh, and we'll want the other quarrymen to support you. You know, we, we, we want to film you playing drums and the other quarrymen playing. So Colin said, well, yeah, that's not a problem. You, you know, I'm sure we can organize that. Now, Rod lives in London, right? I <laughs> live in the middle of the country. Uh, Len and Colin still live in Liverpool. Right. So we keep in touch on email and phone and whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, Colin was telling us this funny story. He said he got a phone call from this American chap, this uh, filmmaker, who said to him, We've sorted out uh, a location for, for us to film the band. So Colin said, yeah, fine. He said, uh, it's uh, two. Colin said, what? He said, it's two. He said, it's number two studio, Abbey Road. Oh, so my gosh. So the four of us go down to London for the day <laughs> and mince wow. about in number two studio and play oh. a few and they filmed. God, mm. And... Uh, yeah, brilliant. Absolutely fabulous oh. experience. Man, that's the best of the best. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that just, is amazing. I am mean, continuously amazed that people are interested still in what went on in those early years, you know, in the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s. Not just yeah. in Liverpool, but... Well, all over the world. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just, I mean, because of this uh, corona nonsense, uh, we've 
had a few gigs have been cancelled but we were due uh, when the lockdown started we were due to play in Spain and uh, we're due to go we were due to go to Liverpool for Beetle Week at Pete Best's club uh, mm. at the end of August but that's been called off as well and we're due to go to what used to be East Germany, Leipzig, uh, <laughs> in October. And then the gig that was in Spain has been reorganized for the middle of October. So so we get around, you know. But Yeah, yeah. You've got some you got some great plans coming up. I think Jude and I are gonna have to make plans to attend one of those gigs. <laughs> well you <laughs> We would love love it. it. We would totally love it. And I tell you, Chaz, that we want you to know how much we appreciate you taking the time to, all the way from England, to be on our show and to share your stories and your great memories. And and you you have had a charmed experience. And I know, you know, when you talk about the the fest and how how nice everyone is. It's like that every time you go to a Beatles function. Everyone is just so enamored with the whole phenomenon of the Beatles. And um, it's a truly remarkable um, thing to witness and to be a part of. And we're so blessed that you could be on our show and to share all of your stories. When at the end of 2019, Jude and I made a list of dream guests that we wanted to have on the show in, in 2020 and you were at the top of the list and so we are so um, just so appreciative especially with everything that um, has, has made this year ultra challenging we thank you for bringing smiles to our faces on these dark days we really do Chaz it's my pleasure yeah, you always it's so wonderful. I have so many people that remember you being at that Chicago fest, and they talk about, you know, yeah, Chaz was this. I went out to have a smoke, and Chaz and I just struck up a conversation, or Chaz and I <laughs> talked over breakfast, and you know, that meant a lot to people. It really did. Well, I, so I'm I'm still in touch with a lot of people that I met on those uh, two gigs in 2013. Um, you know, some of the people who were like yourself who were uh, presenting uh, collections or books or whatever. Um, a guy in Texas, uh, Mark Nabachek. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Chuck Gunderson. Uh, he's in uh, yeah. uh, oh, Denver. Uh, Arizona, I think. Colorado or somewhere. Um, and then, uh, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of funny things that have happened to me. Uh, there's a lady who lives down the road from me here. Now, I didn't know her. I wasn't aware of her. And I got this telephone call one night, and she explained. She said uh, her name, and she lived in Wixford, one of the little villages just down the road. And she said, uh, I'm, doing, uh, I'm doing a master's degree at Liverpool University. And I said, well, hang on. I said, I, I, I didn't do mine in Liverpool. I said, I did mine in Manchester. She said, no, 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 no. She said, you don't understand. Uh, I'm doing a master's degree on the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. Well, I've since seen her thesis. And I've seen you know, articles that she's written based on it. 
And it wasn't really about the Beatles. It was about the BBC programme around the world. Remember when the All You Need Is Love went all the way around sure. the world? Sure. She was involved in that and did the research uh, on how it was done and who contributed and who dropped out and uh, right. all the rumours that were rife at the time about who was going to perform. And uh, right. it's just, you know, you're talking about people in the United States and this lady lives about two miles away from me and, and wants yeah. to talk to me about uh, research. You know, uh, I find it just incredible. People are still interested in something it, that happened all those years. Big time interested. Big time interested. I remember the first time I was having a conversation with Jim Birkenstadt when I looked up and that you were standing there and Jim said, you know this is, and I totally pushed Jim aside and screamed, <laughs> And he, to this day, says, Jude, you dropped me like a hot potato. You shoved me away to get to Chad's movie. <laughs> but I, I knew who you were. Well, I, I've been in touch with Jim over the last couple of days um, uh, because uh, the, the film, uh, the, the, now, let me get it right. I think Roy Robertson's son yes. is involved in purchasing the rights to make yes. the film of the Beatle who vanished. Mm -hmm. um, yep. They're obviously going to do some of it in in London. Um, so Jim's saying, you know, get your tuxedo cleaned because we might be going down to mm. some big occasions. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? It's so great. It's such a good book, yeah. and I. I just did an article on the film, the making of the film for Culture Sonar. It came out about three or four days ago. So sure. um, we're we're wishing him well, and we all want this stupid coronavirus to get over with so that we, we can reconnoiter as a Beatles family somewhere in the world very, very, very sure. soon. Yep, yep. I quite agree. As I say, we, we were due to be in Santiago de Compostela, uh, at the beginning of March, and that was called off. Uh, yeah. And then we were due to be in Liverpool at the end of August. That was called off. We've got a. We think that there was a, a cruise on the Mediterranean, and that's mm. been called off. We think. Uh, it's uh, it's well, not nice, but uh, we will get through it. Well, well thanks and so we'll much for being on today, Chad. Yeah, we, we really appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. And uh, we will keep our fingers crossed that, that we will see you soon. Okay. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Talk soon. It was a delight. Cheers. Okay, June. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What an exciting, Bye -bye. exciting show. Bye-bye, Chaz. Come back. <laughs> yep. Stay safe. You too. You too. What an exciting show this has been. And our She Said, She Said theme this year has been the Beatles family. And in January, we were thrilled to interview Rose Best, the son of Mona Best and Neil Aspinall and brother of Pete Best, Rogue. As almost everyone knows, runs the newly renamed Liverpool Beatles Museum in Massey Street, Liverpool. And his interview was beyond magical. It was mm -hmm. tremendous. It was such a hoot. So you can find a link to it on our She Said, She Said Facebook page. And we're also at www.podbean.com.
www.thesecretsofmyfaith.com. You just go there and put She Said, She Said in the search bar and you'll see all of our shows. And next month in July, we'll be chatting with the joyous, uplifting, and always zany Angie and Ruth McCartney about their happy days with the Beatles as well. Those girls are so energetic. I wish I had a little bit of their energy. So please follow and like our Facebook page and find us at She Said, She Said on Instagram as well. We'll keep you posted there on the shows for the rest of the year. And don't forget to check out the fun and fab books of the Recipe Records series at lanastag.com and the first four volumes in the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Until next time, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. ta and shine on.